If you've read the literal hundreds of stories that Modern Retail has published about the rise of DTC, you know that Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash modernretail, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash modern retail to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash modern retail. Hello and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter Gabby Barco, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Good morning, Kale. Hey, Gabby. It's been a while since we last saw each other. How was your trip? It was great. It was very sunny and wine-filled, but I'm very excited to chat retail with you as usual. So back recharged and ready to dive in. Glad to hear it. Great. So as you all may know, every week we break down the biggest headlines in the retail world. On this episode, we delve into some of the mysteries or factors of why some fashion retailers are currently thriving while others are struggling. Next, we discuss Meta's record $1.3 billion privacy lawsuit filed by the European Union. And lastly, we look at how TikTok shop is gaining traction among live commerce players in Southeast Asia. So first up, let's talk about apparel retail, which has been in flux for the past, I don't know, maybe six to 12 months. And some of the uh, retailers have been citing, of course, a lot of Factors like the economy and consumers just cutting back on spending as as to why their revenue and profits are down. But there are a couple of bright spots among them that are doing well. This week, Urban, uh, which owns Urban Outfitters, Free People and Anthropology, as well as Kohl's posted better than expected earnings. Uh, And of course, you know, this isn't time for summer shopping and traveling. It seems that they're really resonating with their own customer bases, whereas most recently we've seen retailers like Walmart, Target, Foot Locker even, which tends to be pretty resilient, and American Eagle citing uh, a dip in spending. Uh, So yeah, why don't we run the numbers, Kale? And I think Urban, to start out with, is pretty interesting because they always seem to be a little bit under the radar, but one of those kind of quietly doing well retailers, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but this has not been a great earning seasons for many, a great earning season for many industries and apparel especially, and because apparel is often thought of as more discretionary. And so especially retailers in the middle, you know, that cater to nicer clothes that are a little bit more expensive. One would think that it, most of them wouldn't be doing well, but um, Urban brought in $53 million profit in the first quarter, which was a jump from last year's profit, which was $32 million, and sales rose 6% to what they're calling a record $1.11 billion. Um, there's a, Urban's a really interesting company because it has a bunch of different companies. You named them earlier that, that go towards it. You know, there's anthropology, there's Urban Outfitters. I also think the newly part of things is really interesting because that's more of a service that they've been really, really focusing on. 
Um, one of what the company specifically said, uh, revenue was driven by a 5% increase in comparable retail segment sales, strong growth in subscription brand newly, and a significant improvement in gross margins. And so it just seems that there were a lot of factors and a lot of investments likely made earlier that are now helping uh, Urban get to this good point where it's it's seeing pretty healthy numbers while others are not doing as well. Right. Yeah, Nuli is an interesting one to us, of course, because we cover rental a lot. And, uh, you know, they're, they've now become pretty up there with Rent the Runway. It's just that their assortment does lean a little bit more casual. They still do, you know, formal wear. But uh, for day-to-day shopping, it's a, you know, we always hear it's pretty great value. Analysts really seem to like it. And the model and the app uh, are very, you know, just well designed. And so it doesn't surprise me that Newly is just driving so much of the growth, especially again, I think the timing, you know, people may be re-upping their subscriptions despite the uh actually price increase recently makes a lot of sense uh for value uh wise. They just did a story about how people are opting for rentals in order to kind of rotate their wardrobes as opposed to buying, um, you know, higher end items. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, with all that to say, it'll be interesting to see whether this momentum keeps up uh, among these sort of, you know, mid-size retailers. Uh, Another one that has, you know, really reinvented itself recently is Abercrombie & Fitch, which uh, has been doing pretty well throughout the pandemic, but especially in the last quarter, uh, sales increased by 3% to 836 million dollars uh, from the same time last year and same store sales are up 3%. Uh, and so with Abercrombie and Fitch, I think maybe the same sort of thing, right? I think we constantly hear that assortment is so unique. It's such great value. Uh, they kind of teeter that line between millennial and Gen Z, uh, you know, a little trendy, but not super fad focused the way that some fast fashion is. Um, but yeah, what do you, what do you think, uh, What do you think the longevity is of this type of growth, Kale, uh, as far as catering to this specific customer? Well, I think it'll be brand by brand. So with Abercrombie and Fitch, I was looking at their numbers. And one thing that stood out is that, you know, the company as a whole is doing well. But um, I believe Hollister, which is owned by them, did that that's still not not doing as great as they would like. Um, let me see. Hollister comparable sales fell 6% as the company continued to improve its style to a more economically sensitive shopper. I think that's, um, that's from Yahoo Finance, by the way. Yeah. So I think that gets at really what's at, at the heart of this issue, which is the ones that are doing well have been able to solve inventory and solve assortment. They are probably at the right price point to figure out who they're catering to. But also, um, and I thought this was really interesting with Abercrombie and Fitch, um, their inventory is down 20% from a year ago and pretty much said that the new items that come in are being sold. And I think the big issue that a lot of the other apparel companies that are facing major headwinds and aren't able to sell through are because they're still sitting on a huge amount of inventory and don't know what to do with it and aren't able to strategically bring in new inventory to cater to whatever the new styles are. So I really think the the nut of this is that this is a years-long inventory problem. We've been talking about inventory problems for how long now? Like, since the pandemic, pretty much. But it seems like the ones that are doing well have been able to 
go through their old inventory, smartly invest in the new ones, and be pretty nimble, making sure that they're selling the right types of clothes at the right price points, while other ones are still sitting on just way too many things in their stores and aren't selling through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of inventory streamlining, uh, Kohl's is uh, also another retailer that is weirdly doing well. I know we keep saying that, but I think Weir just yeah, after we were looking weirdly at in our notes so many times. <laughs> I mean, I think after you watch uh, or you look at so many earnings where uh, you kind of hear the same, you know, uh, line reading of, you know, economy, economy, uh, consumers cutting back on spending, uh, it kind of goes to show that it, it is possible to do well, but there are, like we mentioned earlier, some factors that have gone into it. And uh, Kohl's also actually has cut their revenue by, or their inventory, uh, excuse me, by 6%. This quarter and really focused on newness and unique assortment. And of course, you know, we can't really uh, talk about this without talking about their Sephora play, which yeah. is really the big one. Uh, their CEO talked about, um, you know, just helping bring those people back constantly, right? Because they're just, uh, they want things that are giftable, new looks, seasonality. Uh, yeah. So again, uh, Kel, the numbers maybe uh, kind of just speak to that a little bit. Sure. So their revenue hit $3.36 billion uh, this past quarter compared to an expected $3.34 billion. You know, that's a that's a good many millions of dollars that they were above expectations. And that goes speaks to exactly what you were talking about earlier, which is Kohl's is thinking about inventory. It made smart partnerships with Sephora and is clearly working on having the right types of items that people actually want to buy. Um, and it's all about... These are all older retailers, and they're trying to think about the best ways to reinvent themselves. And clearly, these are the players that are doing well. And there are others that aren't doing as well. You mentioned Foot Locker. I'm pretty sure Express, though I don't have the notes up right now, you know, Express has been trying to do this for a really long time and has not had the sales growth that it wants. And so it seems that this is a very difficult calculation of figuring out where to invest, how to invest, and how to also cut down on the excess that you had earlier. Um, I think that the Kohl's part that you said earlier that the inventory got cut by 6% is really speaks to the strategy that's working. Right. And I think the irony being that these are all, like you said, just legacy, what we normally think of as mall-based retailers. You know, these aren't necessarily the most uh, hip or cutting edge formats, but uh, I think it shows that right now shoppers are really being selective and looking out exactly for what they want. And of course, value versus just, you know, browsing the web and shopping e-commerce the way they had been a couple years ago. Yep, exactly. Um, it's a really... There, it was very surprising for me that this that we saw these results from these players. I was expecting to see more mixed results from a lot of them, just because of what I've been hearing from executives, how demand has cooled. Apparel is always a tough industry, but especially tough now. And so there's definitely there are definitely some lessons to be learned in terms of how to operate such big businesses in such a way so that you're able to grow sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, just to wrap up a little bit with uh, apparel, I've heard in the last few months, you know, that dip uh, from the beginning of the year through spring is usually very expected. You know, post-holidays, people sort of uh, rein in their apparel shopping, and then it kind of 
you know, ramps back up during summer and travel season and then back to school after that. Uh, but yeah, I do wonder whether apparel is finally sort of making a comeback after a lot of the, you know, markdowns that they relied on, uh, you know, just brands like you mentioned, Gap, Express, uh, that have really <laughs> had to uh, slash a lot of their prices over the last year or so in order to drive that revenue. Yeah, I it definitely could, but I think it'll be it'll be the companies that have been thinking about the styles and the price points that are speaking to their shoppers. And so I think other some apparel retailers probably will not see the growth that they would like for a summer bonanza. I do think economically, just with all of the things that are going on, the debt ceiling fight that's going on, a country potentially going into default, you know, interest rates rising. Uh, inflation is cooling, but it's not like everything is back to normal just yet. And so I imagine that the overall apparel numbers will not be as great as an industry, but there will be certain bright spots from the companies that are thinking smart about what it is that they sell and who they're selling to. Well, next up, we are talking about Meta and its uh, latest antitrust a debacle, I guess you could call it maybe. Um, so Meta this week was slapped by a huge uh, lawsuit, $1.3 billion or 1.2 billion euros. Just goes to show that lo- the <laughs> the small currency exchange now. Yeah, I was about um, to say, yeah, th- if we said this a year ago, it would have been a, a much bigger dollar fine. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And so this is a huge privacy fine. I think the biggest ever that the European Union has ever uh, tacked on to a company. Uh, and so this, you know, it's it's nothing really new. Meta, companies like Meta and Amazon have constantly faced these, especially because the EU has r- some of the strictest uh, privacy laws when it comes to user data uh, in the world, especially compared to the US. And because Meta obviously is a an American company that operates globally. This is a really big deal, especially for their ad business, which at this point is, you know, pretty much the business, right? You could say, considering yeah. their users uh, dipping. So, yeah, uh, Kale, what can you uh, just give us maybe a little bit in layman's terms what the EU is claiming, uh, you know, that the Meta is doing with their citizens' data? Yeah, so this is a decades-long fight that's been going on. And there have been so many different privacy issues related to Meta and Facebook. Most people think of, like, Cambridge Analytica and all those issues. This isn't that. This is actually a little bit simpler, I would even say, where there's been uh, issues roiling around can United States governmental agencies have access to Facebook user data, which they historically have been able to get. Um, And so the issue is that I think it was the NSA specifically could get access to Facebook users' data, and that includes UK and European citizens. Um, And that's not okay, according to the EU. And so GDPR, GDPR, as of this week, is celebrating its fifth year as a... um, a, a rule, the, the law of the land for digital data in Europe. And I think that the EU has been trying to 
show that it can actually enforce it. And so this is its really big enforcement to prove we mean business. If you want to have a digital company that deals with users' data in our countries, you need to abide by our rules. And that means that, you know, the U.S. government can't have access to this data of our citizens uh, in the way that it has been before. And so there, you know, it, it's right now, this is only related to the Facebook app, like like Facebook as a whole. There has not been that much talk about WhatsApp or Instagram. And it, this isn't even necessarily about the advertising business. This is actually just about the actual data that Facebook users use that others could have access to, you know, th through various, you know, super, uh, judicial means. But there are a lot of ramifications for the advertising business. And so this could, depending on what happens, this could have a really big impact because a lot of people in Europe use Facebook. And so if Facebook makes a rash decision and isn't able to change its programs so that it conforms to these data regulations, it, it's actually completely unclear what could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, this always brings up the questions of will Facebook leave Europe or will it, you know, I don't know, rein, rein in some of these practices. But that, in my experience, has never really been an option for a lot of these companies just because of the way cross-border, you know, activity happens these days with digital media. Um, but what, what could it actually mean, I guess, in reality? And you know, with Facebook saying that it will be appealing the decision, of course. Uh, yeah. Is there is there anything that we could actually expect to change or will they, um, you know, as in the past, just eat the fee and, you know, continue to sort of fight back? I mean, this fee is so big that I, I'm, they could, they could obviously pay the fee, but I also think that it sets a precedent in terms of the EU regulators meaning business. And so I think Facebook does have to change something. And so just to give some context, uh, what the EU said is you have to pay the fee. And then uh, Meta needs to pause all data transfers between the EU and the US within five months and make changes within six months or be forced to delete a decade's worth of EU user data. So pretty much the EU is saying you need to make it so that the US can't have access to this user data or and you need to delete it. Um, and so I don't I I am not smart enough. I do not have the technical know-how to know if Meta is able to make these changes so that it couldn't allow for this sort of cross-border data transfer. I imagine it could, but I'm sure Meta doesn't want that to happen. Um, and so does that mean it will leave the EU? That that would be that would be pretty wild. Uh I think 10% of Facebook's ad revenue comes from Europe, so it would be leaving a lot of money on the table. Um, I've been trying to get a sense for what people think Meta and Facebook will do, and it's pretty much what most people think is Meta's going to try and appeal it and win, and if it doesn't win, it'll it'll sort of be the Wild West because this is such a big ruling. Like, this, is, this fine is so much bigger than previous fines, and it it shows that it's trying to really show its teeth. The, the regulator is really trying to show its teeth and tell Meta that it means business and it needs to conform to these regulations. So I, the answer, unfortunately, and it's not a great answer, is I don't know. And it'll be a really, it'll be really interesting to see how how it pans out. We will move on to, I guess, a, sort of a related topic, which is you know, uh, digital platforms. <laughs> 
that are trying to expand <laughs> their global footprint. Uh, of course, we will be talking about TikTok, which for the last couple of years has really tried to uh, establish its own e-commerce and advertising ambition, being very brand friendly. Uh, but in this case, we'll be discussing their uh, the TikTok shop, which is basically the TikTok version of live commerce or video commerce or whatever the uh, the players want to call it these days, which is gaining momentum in Southeast Asia. And so in this case, they are competing with a couple of pretty big established uh, companies, which are Shopee and Lazada. Uh, and uh, with TikTok, I mean, I think this is like a, sort of a quiet investment for them that's really skyrocketed in the last year or so, especially because right now we're hearing that live commerce is, quote unquote, you know, sort of dying off post lockdowns, post COVID. But of course, with Asia specifically, it's it has been and probably will always be uh, a really big segment of e-commerce. And so this is, I thought this was a really interesting evolution in where TikTok sees itself, I guess, in uh, the overall global e-commerce space. Yeah, it's super interesting because TikTok or TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, which also makes the Chinese app Douyin, like it's it's a huge e-commerce presence in China. And now most of the headlines have been focused on TikTok trying to advance its prowess in the United States. But Southeast Asia it clearly is also a big thing. Um, and so according to... Um, I, this was a CNBC article, I think, citing potentially the information. Uh, TikTok shops GMV skyrocketed more than four times to $4.4 billion in Southeast Asia in 2022. And the company is targeting uh, a GMV of $12 billion by the end of this year. That, you know, that's big growth. That's a lot, you know, a lot of money. But also Shopee and Lazada are doing way more money than that. So Shopee uh, in 2022 had $73.5 billion in GMV and Lazada's GMV was $21 billion. Um, or Lazada's was from 2021. And so it's the, not the same year, but it shows just the size of those apps in Southeast Asia compared to where TikTok is now. And it also shows the opportunity that TikTok sees with trying to sell things on its app. Um, and so... We don't often talk about these other regions, but they mean huge business. And so it makes sense that uh, that TikTok would be trying to go go after this area. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think, like you mentioned, this is sort of a drop in the bucket compared to what uh, a company like Shopee is doing. But with live commerce, as we mentioned, already being pretty crowded uh, in Asia. It, I do, I was wondering, I guess, whether just the TikTok name or cachet might help give it an edge in this case, or whether, you know, I guess maybe some of the baggage that we've been talking about this episode uh, could actually end up backfiring when it comes to uh, just what it's trying to do with e-commerce and, uh, you know, specifically branded, right? And uh, with the brand advertisements. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, I think TikTok has an okay brand recognition and brand cachet, especially in Asia. Um, and so I think it's a little, it's a different type of issue than it is, say, in the US or in Europe. But it also, it's very hard to go up against incumbents. And so 
it means you have to spend a lot of money and you really have to make the right partnerships and, you know, work with the right key influence, uh, key opinion leaders to really grow the business in a way that will be able to rival these other players. So I, you know, I, I don't know what TikTok's internal plans are to focus on those regions, but I imagine it's probably not going to be the same playbook that it's been using in the United States because it's just a host of different a host of different political issues, a host of different e-commerce, you know, it's a different e-commerce landscape. And so I think um, you know, it's definitely possible people around the world know what TikTok is, but it does have a lot of work to do to to get up to those other two players. Yeah. And uh, I do want to round it out by talking a little bit. I know we've been hinting at it throughout uh, of what, how TikTok is restructuring its e-commerce team. I feel like it's been really been up and down, uh, just especially since 2020. They announced all of their really ambitious plans to uh, expand it, especially in the U.S., of course, since it's such a big market. Uh, But right now, uh, it does seem like it's pulling out of some markets and moving them to others. So yeah, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what the teams, I guess, reshuffling would mean for this? Yeah. So the Financial Times, a couple days before this latest story about Southeast Asia came out, uh, pretty much said that TikTok is reshuffling, restructuring its entire e-commerce team and focusing only on the regions in which it's already launched and already is seeing growth. And so there was there were so many headlines months ago about how TikTok was going to launch in Europe, and that was its big push. Now it seems like that's no longer the case for the time being. Um, supposedly, according to the FT, TikTok has moved a team in Spain that was focused on a Europe push, and they're going to be focused in London on the UK, where TikTok shops is already live. Um, Southeast Asia, obviously, is playing a big role because TikTok is seeing such a big growth with that. And also, it's going to be refocusing on the U.S. So pretty much, there was there was a lot of talk about TikTok trying to do a big expansion into Europe. It seems like it's putting that slightly on pause and focusing on other, um, on other areas in which it's already launched and it really wants to grow, that being the U.K., the United States, and Southeast Asia. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes sense try to grow what you already have. Don't expand where you are not or where it hasn't been working thus far. Um, And like, you know, maybe this has to do with the EU stuff we were talking about before. Like the EU is a a pretty strict, uh, you know, set of countries. Their regulators have been enforcing a lot of different rules. And so maybe TikTok doesn't want to deal with that right now until it has these other other aspects figured out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the London move is pretty interesting because as, you know, the Brits left to remind you every five seconds is that, you know, they are not, they're no longer for the EU and Brexit is happening. So, you know, it's uh, it's sort of a, you know, an adjacent market that could still do very well. But of course, you know, they're not, they're, like you mentioned earlier, I think not trying anything in the EU is still leaving a lot of money on the table. But um, in, in this case, I guess, just to sort of wrap it up, I would love to just hear a little bit more about just live stream shopping in general and where it is, not just in, you know, overseas, but even here in the U.S., because I do feel like we constantly get sort of mixed messages about the, you know, the sustainability of it all and whether shoppers are really going to be using it consistently, you know, to just to discover products or shop. 
Yeah, well, there was a really interesting stat in this Financial Times report that I thought showed the disparity between TikTok's push in Southeast Asia, where live stream shopping is very big and there are already a bunch of players that are doing well, and how it's still, and we say this like a broken record every few months, it's not hit the big time in the US and really not in the UK either. And so um, the FT reported that uh, most of TikTok's e-commerce sales come from pre-recorded videos and linked outs. Two people told the Financial Times um said that TikTok's live stream selling uh, service only generated 20 million pounds last quarter in sales for the UK. TikTok, it should be said, refuted this, didn't give a number, but said it was much higher. But I think that shows that live stream selling, which TikTok has been trying to really push, um, is not as major in markets like the US and the UK as it wants to be. You know, that doesn't mean it won't be, but this has been a push for years now, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic. Now, now here we are. And it is yet to become a ubiquitous aspect, a ubiquitous aspect of the e-commerce experience. Um, and so just the fact that TikTok supposedly only generated 20 million pounds, it's a lot of money, but compared to the GMV that we were seeing in the others, which were in the the billions, right? Uh uh, it just shows. There's a lot of room to grow, but it also will take a lot of changing habits and uh, you know, just just how people shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then of course this is all happening with the backdrop of the supposed or I don't know, just whatever it is that's happening right now with TikTok potentially being banned by the U.S. So it just seems like they're getting it from all sides at the moment. Yeah. Um, Well, that's our show for this week. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening to us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews by Kale with industry leaders every Thursday. Kale, do you have a preview for us for next week? Yes, I do. Um, I talked with Collars & Co., which is a really interesting company that was on Shark Tank. And I love talking to companies that are on Shark Tank. But they are an apparel company that are trying to make a a shirt that is both dressy, but also informal, like like a polo. You'll hear more about it, but they're a really cool company. Great. Excited. And then, of course, come back on Saturdays for... The Modern Retail Rundown, and as always, thank you for listening.